Welcome to Esoteric Modulation, episode 023, from Baroque to Buchla. Esoteric Modulation is your podcast that covers all the wild and wonderful world of modular, exciting and unusual instruments, guest interviews, sound snippets, and we also take a look into interesting sound and visual art projects too. I'm Ben Wilson. And I'm a ball, Ben. We're back again. <laughs> they roll around so quickly. May I just say that I loved, it's only been a few days back since recording this, I loved uh, Modular Meets Leads that you put on for everybody. That was a great online festival, I would say. Uh, I really enjoyed it. How did you get on with that? Oh, God, streaming technology. It's uh, that and printers. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Printers were the one. Like, if I could not have a printer in my life, I'd be very happy. Yeah, streaming tech, we don't need to be overly negative on the show, so let's breeze on from that. But what we were left with <laughs> felt like a really good event to me. Modular Meets Leeds is an annual event that I hold with Matthew Shaw, Phil Curtis Hall, and Jeffro Bagust for the last, I think this was our sixth year in mid-August, up in Leeds, in West Yorkshire, in England. For those that aren't sure what Leeds is, it's a city. <laughs> <laughs> I am aware of some international listeners. Modular Meets Leeds online, seven hours, bit of a streaming yeah. marathon. It's a great event and a nice online thing to kind of say, here we are, here's what we do, this is how we do modular events. And just to share some of the great stuff, we've had highlights from previous years, yeah. new music from Scanner, unseen performances from Nigel Mullaney, Finley, Shakespeare from Future Sound Systems, new music from Absidic, performances from myself, no one's seen yet. Just a really good wide amount of different styles and music and putting a bit of a focus on the music instead of the gear as well. Really good. Yeah, it was brilliant. It really caught me. I thought there was some great stuff on there, Ben. Yeah, cheers. Appreciate that. I mean, the four of us, it was how do we do yeah, an online event, how we would hold an event. How can we bring this yeah. online and not just be a random stream that, you know, we could just announce we're going to stream and just hang out. Or We're lucky in that we had all that work and a massive kind of talent pool around us, yeah. as I say, Nigel Mullaney, Scanner, yeah. iPassenger, Braddock, all these people that came and got involved. It made for a really good event. We're very happy with it. What else have you been up to? Be playing around with, um, I think I mentioned it before, Felt Instruments Walnut which is a free oh, yeah. sample-based instrument. It's a piano recorded yeah. to tape, and it's all at half speed. So the transients of the hammer hitting the string inside the piano is all smeared and kind of pulled apart, and it's tape half speeds, you know, none of the artifacts of a digital pitch shift or anything like that. It's a really lovely instrument. And I've been playing around with formant shifting and pitch shifting sounds before they go into effects chains. Yeah. It's been a bit of a pop production technique for a while where you maybe pitch up a vocal an octave and send that into the reverb. So you have this kind of higher right. shimmering, which isn't the direct sound sounding to chipmunk yeah. like. Yeah. It doesn't always work. And I've kind of struggled with that in more of a band setting before. Yeah. But I think it's worked really well considering this was half speed piano, then shifted back up the octave with some form and yeah. shifting and it gives the kind of effects in this little example i'd like to play just this odd weird texture around the piano but it's really nice nice let's take a listen
That's ghostly, <laughs> evocative, just ethereal, beautiful, stunning, really stunning. That is. It's nice playing around with space as well, which we'll play nicely to the guests and how they work that we've got on the show today. But yeah, it's a little bit too slow, maybe. But I kind of like it. It's if it was like you know, it. four or five BPM up, it might just sit that bit nicer. It's a little bit laboured, but not quantizing the piano means all the tempo sync delays then shift a little bit as that melody yeah. comes around just repeats but it's played slightly differently each time and all the background textures a little bit inspired by you drenching things in the eventine space yeah. those higher kind of pad like sounds are still just the piano but just yeah through a lot of effects what about you what have you been up to well it's really weird that you've played that piano piece because i bought a used piano last year and I'm going to say it's one of the best things I've ever bought. It's brought me great pleasure over the last six months. And I've been, I've just been sitting down at the piano, just sort of tinkling along and losing myself in it. I think I've mentioned it before. It's one of my you know many pleasures that I love. So I've been doing that with one thing in mind, just trying to get my head around some things that I can put through granular stuff and you know, dare I say it, when I eventually get the cocoa, you know, um, <laughs> put it through a cocoa. So I've got, I've always got that in mind when I'm sort of playing around with different chord structures and things. So I've enjoyed that, but also I've hit the Nord drum three quite hard this month, literally. and I'm telling, yeah, literally, <laughs> and I'm telling you that thing is freaking amazing. I just think for me tonally it's the best sort of percussion instrument there is but not only that i want to sort of take it into experimental territory and you know soundscapey ethereal territory and i'm really getting to grips with that at the moment because it is sound design driven synthesis the ways you can push that into uncharted territory is brilliant there's not much really on youtube about it but i did stumble into jeremy's uh, red means records 
YouTube vid on Nordrum 3 with the Digitact friend. It's worth looking at that because what he's doing there, he's affecting all the parameters of the Nord drum through the Digitact. Uh, because when you start messing around with the parameters within the live sound, you start really getting some unusual stuff happening. And that's the sort of road I'm going down. Just thinking about all these combos I could attach to it via CV to MIDI that could pull the sound parameters around. I mean, for instance, if you whacked Oct onto a CV to MIDI converter and then went into the different parameters whilst playing that Nord drum, it'd be spectacular. And that's some of the things that I'm thinking of doing to take it into sort of this uncharted territory. So I've been messing around with that. And then also last month, I did a little snippet of bacteria taken into the microgranny via speakers into 8-bit. And then I've took that then and put together like a little soundscape that is built up around uh, the microgranny. So, yeah, I've been sort of messing around with that too. Mm, let's check it out. It's really nice to hear how this piece bacteria has developed. As we said before you've played, it's really interesting to hear how this kind of crunch of the micro granny works with the dry sound. And also how, because I've got to see the project, because you sent me the project over to check out, how this relates to how you paint. You did say to me when I got the original mix to bacteria over to you to do your wizardry on, you came back and said, I can really see you using your technique of painting in here because we've talked about the layers and how I balance the layers and that and of course we'll be talking to our guest today that I've took a lot of inspiration from on how to produce sound using the same sort of techniques as I do painting and that is what I'm actually trying to do but it wasn't until you said it I thought oh wow okay that's great because that shows that sort of technique from paints coming over into music and that's just you know fabulous to know that that's happening. I think there's a whole kind of like patchwork quilt type thing you could do with the audio and this goes round and round i like this idea that there's a respect for the original material but at the same time i get the impression if you just want to whack it all back through space 100 percent wet that's what's going to happen yeah <laughs> and it's just it, <laughs> it's material to be shaped it's clay it's malleable you're gonna push this around and I think you're starting to get into that kind of power of a DAW environment with the things you've done on hardware. And I think the marriage yeah. of the two is why it's nice to kind of check in on this along the way. 
Yeah, it's been really intriguing. And as I say, I think I might sort of keep it up and just keep morphing this piece over time. As I say, bringing the Nord drum in as well, maybe next month and just keep it up. It'd be interesting to see where it goes. Anyway, I suppose before we introduce our guest, I just want to say that we had problems with the audio on this one. I didn't realize that my audio had defaulted to my webcam. So I do sound like I'm in a bit of a tin can. So apologies before we go into the intro on this, but it's worth sticking with because we love this guest, don't we, Ben? Oh, absolutely. And it was my turn to sound terrible and clipped (laughs) in the last episode, unfortunately. (laughs) There's definitely some strange difference in the service that we use between what we're monitoring and can visibly see and what's kind of happening on the back end, I think. But we're looking into it for those audio files out there um, that don't like an overly crunched or tin canned voice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're aware and we're looking into it. But the guest is well worth sticking with. Um, it's a great conversation. Let's get into it. He is an accomplished composer, musician, performer, lecturer and synthesist who has had a lifelong fascination with sound and timbre. He has been exploring music and sound since childhood. Spurred on by an inspirational teacher, he composed on piano and trumpet in elementary school. From the years between junior high and high school, he progressed into a band, a choir, a small jazz combo and then into orchestras. He received a gift of a two-track tape recorder as a teenager in the mid-60s, and he's not stopped exploring since. In the early 70s, he was investigating and performing a lot of early music. This included styles of medieval, renaissance and baroque, performed on very traditional instruments like recorders, schwims, krumhorns and baroque trumpet. He has lectured on musical notation of the Middle Ages, and written numerous scores for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, where he was a resident composer for over 40 years. But it was the 70s that would define his love for electronic music. His first encounter was with a Buchler music easel that a friend, Doug Leedy, handed to him to explore. I believe the story goes something like this. He locked himself away in the attic, many days later surfacing with squinted eyes in the sunlight and a very big smile on his face. He had just found a lifelong passion he never knew he had, but there was a distinct connection between his past and the new future that he was just about to start out on, and that was the ability to alter timbres. His passion for exploring the traditional instruments was all about timbre. He was infinitely curious about the effects of timbre on himself and others. The quality and the colour of the sound seemed fathomless to him and analog synthesis would continue that fascination, giving him the ability to explore it in many new ways. In his own words, I could not afford my Buchler at the time, so I hopped the house and got a surge modular system in 1997. From then on, he has explored lots of electronic musical instruments and has become a dedicated educator on Buchler, Surge and Hordike. He has collaborated with authors, composed for concerts and theatre, scored films and video, consulted on equipment, lectured, educated, created music and albums of multiple genres and has received numerous awards for his theatre music. He is the king of the crowd patch. Today, folks, we have Mr. Todd Barton on our show. Todd, a very big welcome to our show. It's great to hear you both. What an intro, Ed. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) That was a a little bit of a long intro, but I did that, Todd, because you have been on a few podcasts in the past, and we'll put some links to those podcasts, because they do go into your background quite succinctly, don't they? Mm. And for this podcast, I wanted to try and get something fresh and new. So I thought I'd give people a really good, broad look at what you've done in the past. And boy, you've done a lot, Todd. Um, life is good. <laughs> <laughs> life is good and rich. <laughs> so we have many questions today, Todd, to get in. First of all, I'd like to talk about uh, one of your releases that you released in this July, Metascapes. Now, I thought I'd start off with this because it's something that probably we don't talk about a lot with you, and that is software, because this particular album was created with Metasymph, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I'd just like to know the basics behind that. You know, what drew you to that software and what was the idea behind the release? Well, the release is actually a re-release. It was originally uh, released in 2001. And I became aware of Metasynth, I think, in near its inception in the late 90s. And what I love about the software is it's visual. So in other words, you can draw, you know, using your mouse, you can draw on the screen. It's sort of like Photoshop for sound. It doesn't happen in real time. You have to render it, but what you draw can be rendered rather quickly. And so I started creating graphic scores in Metasynth. And I mean, this goes back to my fascination And I've always linked visuals with music, which goes back to, I think you mentioned, early teacher of mine. He took a bunch of us and said, do you want to learn how to compose? And said, go listen to a piece of music in a theater if you go to a movie this weekend and come back and write it out. And we went, we can't write music. We're only eight years old. You nuts? And (laughs) (laughs) he said, no, no, just draw it. So we brought in these little graphic scores of the tunes we had heard in the movie. And one by one, he drew them on the chalkboard, reproduced them, and then proceeded to turn our squiggles into notes and put a staff line up there and a treble clef. And he turned our squiggles into music in front of our eyes. And so I've always had a visual connection with music. I wonder how close you could get to those eight-year-old squiggles with Metasynth. I bet they'd be almost completely be able to recreate them yeah having used metasynth well, 10 years ago maybe 15 years ago mm-hmm. you could probably redraw those out and interpret them yeah in metasynth one of the famous electronic pieces people may know equation by apex twin when you look at it on a spectrograph i think it's his face at the end of the spectrograph which uh... was brought in as an image right the final <laughs> bit of the track right i think it's richard james's face which was brought oh in, wow as you say as a visual and then this whole spectral morphing across the outline of the face and the eyes it's, it's stunning the way that yeah as you say the, the visual being so connected to the sound yeah i've seen this software and i always keep thinking right i gotta have a look at this because obviously it is you know, very visual and you can paint with it and it sort of lends itself to, you know, what I'm doing, which is you know, mm-hmm. image with sound uh, in my practice. And I always think, oh yeah, I must have a look at that. And then I never get round to it. And obviously we were talking about it on the social, had a look and it does look quite amazing. I mean, it's got an image synth, uh, image filter, spectrum synth, and then effects room. 
and then a sequencer. Did you use all of that to compose or just parts of that? There's also another, I think they call it the, the double X. It's a separate application that does the sort of MIDI side of things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, did you use that whole package to create that album? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. And not only can you generate tones from you know the computer, so you can create wave shapes, and you can yeah. do microtunings, you can create your own microtunings, and there's a whole library of microtunings available. But you can also create your own samples and have those played back. Then it becomes a matter of deciding how you're distributing pitch over the height of your screen, because you can compress things down and so that your whole screen is basically only an octave. (laughs) So you get a lot of microtunes or it can be like 10 octaves and everything in between. So there's a lot of manipulation and thinking going into how to play back either created sounds in the computer or sampled sounds. And then, you know, you have tools that can sprinkle dots in there and then you can blur them out, you know, like it's total Photoshop. You can grab and smudge and pull and transform and use displacement maps. Can you you upload images into that or is it you literally penning something directly into it? Both. Yeah, you can pen directly into it. And in fact, I uploaded my favorite artist, Vasily Kandinsky, Yes. Did a famous piece. He did a lot of pieces that were called compositions, but composition number eight from yeah. 1923 has always been a favorite. And so I put composition eight into Metasynth. Yeah. And then I created a sample set of like an orchestra that would have played a Schoenberg chamber piece, because it turns out Schoenberg and Kandinsky corresponded a lot. <laughs> yeah. So then I just had Metasynth play the Kandinsky artwork. Wow. Okay, that's really interesting because obviously as an artist, I'm very interested in obviously painting music and splicing those two. Of course, Kandinsky was one of the first people that used music very, very boldly within his painting process as well. So I love that little round trip of taking an artist that's inspired by music, bringing that back into music and then using that as a base. That's uh, pretty inspired, really. (laughs) I'll send you the link. You might enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And yeah, I've just got composition number eight up and I've actually seen that at the Tate. It's a beautiful piece, isn't it? Yeah, it was at the Guggenheim. They had a Kandinsky retrospective about maybe eight or nine years ago. And I just went to New York just for that. You know, all five levels of the Guggenheim were nothing but Kandinsky's. So I got to stand in front of that for a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, some people think I'm mad because, like, you have these retrospectives, like sort of the Pollock retrospectives and, you know, Monet, and I'll stand in front of my favourite piece for, for hours. Yeah. In fact, in the tape, they've got the Rothko room, which is a permanent thing. And oh, yeah. One of, one of my favourite things to do when I'm in London is just go and sit in the Rothko room for half hour mm-hmm. and just be enveloped by his beautifulness. It's uh, just yeah. a, a lovely thing to do. Again, Rothko didn't directly use music, but he did paint whilst music was on. I think a lot of artists do. Um, But for me, his artwork just envelops you, doesn't it? It does affect me like music does, if that makes sense. Uh, Totally. Well, and it's, you know, it's timbre. 
it's it's timbre on steroids and yes if as you say if you're there for a half hour or especially if you sit down and you look at only one painting for a half hour things start to change and biophysically you know our rods and cones start going through different phases but if you're looking at a large color field like that all of a sudden you go oh where would that bar of color come from it's, a, it's an amazing experience, and I would say to anybody that could go and see a Rothko in, especially a room that he set it up for, because, you know, he was very specific how the room had to be set up, the lighting had to be a certain dimness, and if you can see a, some of his artwork in that setup and just spend time with it, it's absolutely amazing. It's something mm-hmm. that you probably wouldn't think of if you're not really into art. But to get back to the Metascape, what was you trying to achieve with that? Because... If you said to me, that's a score to a movie, I would totally believe you. It's very thematic. It was a collection of pieces I was working on at the time to try to keep pushing the borders of what I could do within the Metascape environment. So everything from using like acoustical samples to using completely generated tones from the computer I had been working on genome music in 2000, which was creating music from chromosome DNA sequences. found that Metasynth and, as you mentioned, the MIDI interface XX, which is actually a female chromosome, so that's fascinating. Uh, But um, I was able to put the nucleotides sequences into Metasynth, and then I was able to stretch them out and transpose them, and that's how I was able to derive a lot of compositional material from just four nucleotides, A, T, C, and G. So there's a couple of those pieces on Metascapes. Yeah, it's definitely broad, isn't it? It's got mm. a lot of different feels to it as you're going through that album. I mean, I love a dark soundscape, so I totally love terrain. I thought that oh. was a fantastic track. It's such a a broad album, beautifully Mm. put together, really nice. Uh, Did you have a beginning and end to that? Or 
was you doing it piece by piece and then putting the order in for the final album? It was more piece by piece and then curating the structure at the end. It wasn't a quote concept album. No, yeah. You mentioned that these processes in MetaSynth are offline. And I think to people who maybe haven't worked with any offline processes, will be that that may in some way kill the inspiration or the creativity. But I spent a lot of time in the original SoundHack software, phase convoluting mm. samples, which again was all offline. And rather than that taking me out of the moment and having to wait a few seconds or a minute if it was a long stretch of audio, I found this excitement just boiled over in me at the time, <laughs> dying to know what this tab on a can against a sustained piano note or mm-hmm. a violin bow on a guitar. And you think, I'm going to phase convolute between them across <laughs> 30 seconds. And I want to see what all these in-between bits were more interesting yeah. than the edges. And it really kind of spurred me on. I mean, we don't need to get into you know the computer you were using particularly, but how long were these stretches of offline processes? Was it really doing something and standing up and walking around the room, or was it quite quick? Was that exciting, not knowing what may come out? How did you find it? Uh, well, I, I share your excitement because I love surprise, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yes, I did everything from you know very few short convolutions to like nine minutes. I think that was the most I could get before it hit its limit. Yeah, especially there was a granularization feature, so you could take something that's three seconds long and make it nine minutes long. I, in fact, I used that. On my recent CD, Spaces, that came out about a year ago, it's a lot of Buchla and Hordike, but there's this bed that's, I think on the side one, it was going to be vinyl, so like the first cut is 15, 16 minutes long. But the bed that's continually changing was just one of the tracks that is used in real time (laughs) in the foreground. And then I just granulized that in MetaSynth to 16 minutes. And that then became, in a way, the inspiration for building on top of that. I love the idea of working to that medium. This side of vinyl is 16 minutes, so I'm just going to make a 16-minute bed. And then that is this sonic world I live in for that side of the release. I like that with tape. I need it to be X amount of length. I have a thing at the moment where... A few tracks made for an EP I'd like to release potentially on cassette. And I can get the tape custom cut to the length, but then I need the B-side to be the same length. So I'm in this kind of, oh, (laughs) do I reverse bits of it and half-time it? Do How am I going (laughs) to... I haven't quite figured how I'm going to mould this into the exact same time on the other side just yet. But I'm fascinated with that restriction. It will come. There'll be a moment or something I'm toying with that'll be, right, that's it. That will be side B. I'm not finding it, though. Yes, absolutely it will come, and a frame is good. Mm. <laughs> you know, I love working within restrictions, too. I mean, yeah. again, that's one reason I love the easel, the Buchla Music easel, is because it's finite, but I still keep finding amazing things in there. How much do you find that systems like Buchla or Hordike or could be Yororak or anything, how does their character come across in these processes, like with MetaSynth? Once you've stretched three seconds to nine minutes, does it really matter what goes in? Or do you find that somehow that character of the easel or the Hordike or a surge system, does it manage to retain that 
Yeah, uh, it, it retains its inflection, mm. if that makes sense. I can still hear the inflection, even though it's theoretically obliterated. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's a good question. And I remember, you know, stretching different things to use that hypothesis and then do the experiments. And indeed, things kept their soul, <laughs> if you yeah. will. Because with software like Pole Stretch, which many of our listeners may have played with, once that gets so long, I don't think it matters what it is. It could right. be my daughter laughing or a car going by or a synthesizer. Once that piece is six hours long <laughs> from a Yeah, stage, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's completely gone. And I don't know if yes. shorter processes would do that. Right. But it's nice to know that your experience with Metasynth would do. Yeah. Add some sort of importance to the input and a bit more intent than just, I just need nine minutes of a sound bed. Right. And in the granulize, as when within every effect and window in Metasynth, you can draw envelopes. The grains would get denser or sparser. Maybe even pitch would rise. I mean, you have a lot of manipulative possibilities, creative possibilities. So I would never just put it in and draw a straight line and go, yeah, do that. No, it also had inflection that I was controlling, I guess you could say. Todd, we've just talked about Bukla, and I know that you're bringing out a track on a compilation tape, aren't you, shortly? I don't know much about that. Uh, could you give us some information about it? Oh, yes. It's coming out on ultraviolet light. It's, it'll be a cassette, a compilation cassette. Jimmy Joe Roche, who runs ultraviolet light, he released a cassette of mine of Bukla. He released another cassette of mine of Hordike, and also a split cassette I did with Heinbach. Wow. So, yeah, and he emailed me and said, you know, I've been doing this now for five years. I'd like to do something special for the 20th cassette yeah. release. And what would you think about asking around the Bukla community and we do a Bukla compilation cassette? So I thought, well, okay. <laughs> so I just... I felt a little intimidated, but, you know, sent out emails to a lot of people I know that do Bukla and yeah. uh, just to see what would come back. First person that jumped on it, I think within 24 hours was Suzanne Chani. Brilliant. Uh, and she recommended Jonathan Fatosi. And then Caitlin Aurelia Smith came on board and uh, Dan Deacon, Hans Tommen, uh, Steve Horlick who you probably know as yeah. Steve H. from Mac Pro yeah. Video, yeah. and myself and Marsha Bassett. So we got this wonderful, diverse approach to the Bukla, which is what I was hoping for. I mean, all eight of us go after the Bukla a thousand percent, and yes. we do it in such different ways. So I was also brought on board to curate it. So that was quite the fun process to try to figure out how to order these four on each side of the cassette. The only limitations for us were to make it five to six minute long pieces yeah. that hadn't been done before. And everyone seemed to be okay with that. And so it was a fun chess game, how to order these so that hopefully the listener is pulled along and surprised now and then, and then given a little relaxation before maybe another surprise 
It's like trying to put a set together as a band, even if you've got quite varied material. It's like, do you come in with a bang and dip down and lead back up in energy? Mm-hmm. Do you try and draw them in quietly, <laughs> knowing that if the music even is maybe quite hardcore and intense, that at some point there needs to be some rest. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> even less right. intense, even in an intense setting, those ups yeah. and downs. And that's only amplified when there's the variations of different composers approaching yeah. this. Yeah. Speaking to Nathan Moody about his easel a couple of years ago, mm. he'd often talk about the amount of low end that would come off, at least of, of his version of the music easel, and what working with that as an engineer was like for mm-hmm. him. I mean, similar things are said about the Model D from Moog and other instruments as well. And then thinking of tape, tape will kind of bloom in the low end, the way it saturates. That yeah. is very nice. And I just wondered if there was just this marriage of it's not the recording format necessarily, but that being the listening format, if there's just some marriage there somehow. Ah, that that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 frankly, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that other than, you know, I do love the low end of the easel and the warmth of tape. I guess I'm more used to reel to reel because that was mm. my bread and butter. I think uh, talking to Carl Swisher, Dark Sparkler, he just loves his easel going into reel to reel. And I have to say, I, you know, I think it does. I think they both marry well, don't they, in that sort oh, of environment? Right. And I, I mean, I do love vinyl. I put out that little short vinyl. But again, you have to really watch out on the low end because mm. it'll eat up time, one thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then you need Nathan Moody to master it for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just not as forgiving, is it? Because it will it will yeah. throw the needle out of the record on a yeah, you know, right. ideal <laughs> turntable. Whereas on yeah. tape, it's not that horrible if you drive no. too much low end into it. It's a much more, yeah. you know, it may completely blow out the mix and just be very subby and, and deep, but that's more pleasant than a jumping needle, definitely. It certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, I'd love to talk about your creative process and your famous quote of follow the sound. It's meant a lot on my creative journey. I mean, I think we first spoke in 2017. I was interested in the Buchla easel. Very kindly after, I think it was a few days after that, you sent me a document of Todd's analog aphorisms, which I still have, and I've just got it in front of me. And as an artist, it was fantastic to see. Uh, To anyone who probably won't know this, but it's a little PDF booklet that Todd has put together. And it's just got your thoughts, I think, and some quotes from other people on there about the creative process, which Mm -hmm. I love. But when I was struggling to to find what I was going to do sound-wise from painting, when you come up with that quote about following the sound, it just struck a chord with me, and I thought, hang on a sec, that's exactly what I do when I paint. Mm. I follow the colour and structure. I don't know what I'm going to do next till I put the first strike down. And then it's all about balancing that strike. Then it's all about balancing that bigger strike. Then it's, it starts to get a bit more complicated and you're, mm. you're sort of juggling paints to balance it all. And that's exactly the way I paint. Mm. And I thought, that's what I've got to do with sound. <laughs> but how did you discover your natural creative flow with that? How did that come about? 
it sounds like the, the your music teacher was a part of that that when you said you know you're kind of crazy we can't compose you went just draw it draw it on paper yeah, yeah. it sounds like that was such an important moment of defining what music can be that was and i realized there was a an even earlier defining moment and the more i think about it the more amazing it becomes because when i was five on weekends my parents wanted to sleep in <laughs> so i would go in this tiny little sort of utility room which had a tv and a tube radio right it was black and white tv tiny screen and i think like at eight o'clock in the morning i could watch the howdy doody show which was a, the only kid show and then it went into grown-up stuff like Jack Lane doing exercises or talking heads on news or sports or something. I used to turn the sound down on the TV because when it went into that programming, and I remember turning the radio on and hearing the click of the knob, and then nothing happened. There was no sound, even though that volume knob was up. And then watching the tubes light up, get warm and get brighter and brighter and then hear today or so or come to you know it was like whoa okay so what that taught me is turning a knob and waiting and being patient is all about sound and if you wait long enough something will happen and then you start turning that dial and it just you know will go Today we are, and then you hear some music, and I mean, I could sit there for hours. <laughs> and so here at age of 71, I still love turning knobs, and I still love being patient to see what will happen. And it gets back to what you were saying, Ben, about, you know, surprise. All that surprised me. And when I go out to the studio every day to follow the sound, I'm looking for, oh, what haven't I heard? Where is it going to take me? When uh, my daughter and I were in Italy this winter, I was doing concerts in Rome and Milan and around, but we were basically just home basing there and Marina di Carrara on the West Coast. And I remember one night around sunset, there was this old guy with metal detectors I know there's some sound going on because they have headsets on. They're walking around on the beach, and I have no idea what they're listening to. But I went back, Googled metal detectors, and then, you know, looked at YouTubes to find out what's going on. You know, and they're listening to little bleeps and bloops and clicks. And depending on the loudness and the inflection and the distance between clicks, they know if there's some metal under the sand, like is it three inches under, four inches? And most of them are out there to look for, you know, coins and people that have dropped watches or whatever. But they said that the real metal detectorists are listening deeper than that. They're listening for faint sounds that aren't on the surface of those clicks and bleeps because those deep sounds that occur very infrequently mean that there's something like maybe three feet down and might be like, you know, from the 1800s or the 1700s or something like that. What drew me to this guy was I could see in his eyes how intently he was listening. He wasn't like the other ones. 
who were just sweeping around and talking. He was just so focused. I went, oh, this guy is doing deep listening. And I recognize that because that's what I do when I'm moving a slider on the easel as I'm going slowly and trying to listen for things that are a few layers down in the sound. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. In the booklet that you sent me, and there's quite a few quotes in there, obviously following the sound is one of them, but uh, music is sculpting energy, I think was the other one. I'm just mm. wow, yeah, that is so right, isn't it? I love all your quotes in this little book because, again, they're all very much art-related. You know, as an artist, <laughs> I can relate to these quotes within a musical form. Okay, it's sculpting energy. I, I see that. You know, following the sound, I, I see that. I think it's got some really lovely insights. I love the last pages as well. It's a, I want an instrument that makes sound I've never heard before that follows the curve of my imagination. Fast, slow, darting, dodging, dangerous, the more, every which way, never knowing what comes next. I, I love that. Again, I love the way that you are putting a very artistic expression on the musicality of things. Mm. Again, where does that come from? I mean, when I approach you to do the art modular synthesis, which I've still got to do, I haven't done yet, which was collaborating with modular artists and painting their music. Mm. I mean, that really resonated with you. So where does that love for art and a music mix, where does that come from too? Is it just a, a natural thing that you have within you? Yeah, well, it certainly goes back to third grade and <laughs> seeing my graphic score turn into music. But I've always been just fascinated with arts. I mean, there was a time where maybe it's a decade ago now, I decided I wanted, I'm not an artist, <laughs> Yeah. But I like to dabble in ink, just sort of yeah. freeform. But I also was going like, hmm, Kandinsky. You know, I'd like to understand Kandinsky's mind, just like I want to understand Don Buchla's mind. Yeah. And so um, with Don Buchla's mind, the way in is, of course, with the 200 and the easel. And, and with Kandinsky, what I did was I started uh, and I decided I'm going to figure out how to do at least art my way. A friend actually has had prostate cancer. He was my mentor and much older than me. Yeah. And we both love ink, fountain pens. And so I started sending him a postcard every day. So the first one was like taking a rectangular postcard and deciding where to put one dot. Yeah. What's the best place? Okay, center's boring. Uh, <laughs> upper left corners, nah, not so much, you know. Ah, Golden section. Yeah, let's put the dot there. And then the next day was squiggles. And the next day was three geometric shapes. And how do I arrange three geometric shapes? And this is all just black ink on white paper for a long time. And then I started adding color. At any rate, 500 postcards later, I could actually do something. And I learned a lot along the way that applied to music. I mean, it's about balance, mixing, rhythm, surprise. So it sounds actually like Kandinsky actually has been quite a, an influence um, or a base that mm -hmm. you have looked at for the influence of art on onto music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And since he was, I mean, he was a synesthete, right? Yeah. And he was a musician as there's these correspondences between Schoenberg and him. 
and Schoenberg was an artist. And so Schoenberg would send him his art for some feedback and uh, Kandinsky would send some music. You know what I love about people? They always start off with, oh, I'm no artist. And then yeah. throw in a little story about you doing those 500 ink drawings. And so someone in probably 50 years time is going to go, well, Todd was a little bit of an artist. You know, we've got these 50 cards. <laughs> he did. He confesses he wasn't an artist, though. <laughs> so I think that's the thing people are, yeah. oh, I'm not an artist. You're an artist. <laughs> well, yeah. But I think you've naturally got that in you, that sort of artist expression as a musician, definitely in your language with what you use and, and how you move forward with it. I think through all of this, and I've known this through brief conversations we've had, Todd, and another podcast that I've heard you on, it's a, just a deep love and respect of music and sound. I think that's mm-hmm. what this is at the core of it. I, I know Gaz Williams, bass player and, and engineer, composer, he talks about music is happening all around us and mm-hmm. we can jump on it and we can jump off and we need to be respectful while we're there. Mm-hmm. And I think that really is what's the core of all this, giving it time and intention of listening and being responsive Mm. And then, as you say, terms fast, slow, darting, this can be applied as you do in your musical work to panning, tone, pitch, rhythm, mm-hmm. how sounds are laid or not laid, how dense the mix is. It's working in those methods, I think, that comes from that kind of deep love and respect of sound and following it as you do it. It's a really mm. lovely thing that I hope. I speak for myself as well in this, that more of us have chance and time to do because that's what it needs, I think. It needs time. Lots of people are very busy and I think we don't Mm -hmm. have time or we tell ourselves that we don't. And we feel that in any given session or moment of time we carve out in our calendars that things have to happen. They don't. Mm. It's fine to get on and get off and for it to Mm -hmm. have just been a passing experience. Something Mm -hmm. doesn't have to come from all of this, but it somehow all influences and and ties together. That was beautifully put, Ben. I I guess respect for music and sound and patience, which always takes time. The system that I'd love to have a a whole show and more to talk about, I've got patience and I will have to have, even if I try and order one today, the Hordike system, the wonderful Mm. mind of Rob Hordike, someone that I've been very lucky to have spent some time with and him only being in the Netherlands and us in the UK, people come over to the modular meets events we do and he stayed with us and had a great time. But before kind of diving into anything technical with that system, is there something underlying beyond the feature set in these different systems for you? Going to your Hardike system or to the Surge or the Buchler, is there anything you can kind of put a pin in other than the different technologies? Of course, you know, the, the everybody Don Buchler's mind is different to Serge and to Rob's. But how does that kind of influence you creatively? I guess that's hard to separate from the technicalities of the system. You know, I mean, to try to answer that, but again, like you say, it does get back to the technology. But it's like the three instruments I pick up often are a shakuhachi, a didgeridoo, and a waterphone. Mm. <laughs> so... Those are acoustic instruments, and yes, they're completely different technologies. Uh, They were, in a sense, designed for different things. You know, the waterphone is sort of like a handheld acoustic synthesizer that's going to give you abstract sounds. The didgeridoo is going to be drone-oriented and 
circular breathing <laughs> for eight hours if we want to really do it. And the shakuhachi was meant for Zen meditation music. So uh, I don't know that I can draw that hard metaphor over to these three different synths because for me, they're all, you know, has now become called West Coast. But, yeah. um, and for me, the essence of West Coast is like each module is multifunctional. And that's yeah. true with Buchla, Hordike, and Surge. Each module can do so much. And there's so much under the hood that, you know, we don't see on on the face panel at first glance, at any rate. But yes, like you were saying, Ben, I mean, three different mindsets. I mean, I, I got to get technical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried to give it the uh, metaphorical good old try. <laughs> yeah, it's too hard to separate, I think. And I didn't presume there was a, an underlying pull or draw outside of the feature set. I mean, you've talked to Rob. I feel a big personal pull to Rob having met him, for example. Yeah. Yeah, and he can speak so eloquently about his design process and his connection to the sound. I remember he, he was telling me that, you know, early, like in the 80s, he was trying to create everything out of noise. He believed all musics live inside noise. It's just up to us to pull it out in different ways. And I think this also came from his mentor, Jan Borman, who was doing a lot of work with noise in the 60s and bandpass filters and things like that. And so, you know, so the core essence of follow the noise, <laughs> repurpose my phrase, I think brought him to the Rungler, you know, which is like yeah. the Rungler feels to me like a core piece inside the Hordike environment. And yes, it generates random voltages fluctuating and discrete, yada, yada, yada. But it does it so differently than Buchla. Yeah. Because I think he's coming from a completely different way of corralling or sculpting randomness. And uh, Surge, likewise, comes out at completely different. Sort of the Rungler for Hordike. For Buchla, it's wave folding and, you know, of course, the source of uncertainty, but those are pretty distinct flavors of randomness, which is yeah. cool. But wave folding wasn't around when this all started. So the wave folding with the low pass gate seems to be sort of the crux for me for Buchla. And then for Surge, it's the dual universal slope generator, yeah. which can be 20 different modules. Everything from a filter to an oscillator to a subharmonic generator to an envelope to a pulser to you name it. It goes on and on. And the beauty of that is if you use it as an oscillator, it's not wave folding and it's not wave shaping. It's this really weird wave morphing where when it's in low, it's like, oh, it's a square wave. No, it's a pulse wave. Oh, it's getting higher in pitch. Oh, it just turned into a triangle wave. Whoa. Oh, now we're up here. It's a sawtooth. You know, and there's no hard edges, you know, these moments, these windows where they morph between that. I was just talking audio, then of course you can use that for modulation too. Anyway, those are, I guess, the core of how I see the differences of those three. I think the hard Ike in that trio is interesting in that there's definitely some East Coast subtractive leanings as well, mm -hmm. should you want mm -hmm. to work that way which yep. would be a lot harder to do 
in Booker and Surge. Not impossible, but not right. Because I think Rob's I mean, partly tainted by it being 5U and thinking of MU and .com and MOTM and those formats, but you could build oscillators into filters, into VCAs, very simply. Mm-hmm. And so somehow, because it has that leaning, is it the more open of them all? I don't mm. know. It's not the dual universal slope generator, which I think hands down has been the best learning experience for my working with sound to, mm. to spend time realizing that if I feed it back on itself, I can make the slopes exponential and all mm-hmm. these things, really learning how voltages make sound and audio mm-hmm. is a crucial thing. I don't know. We're running dangerously towards the end of a show, Ed, and I could keep Todd for hours on Rob Pod. <laughs> I'd like your point that is, is his system, in a sense, more open? Yeah, more yeah, open. yeah I, I think yes. And I mean, you know, his dual envelope can feed back on itself and do lots of, yeah. you know, there, there's so much, under again, under the hood that, yeah, it does do both. I mean, you know, 24 dB filter is definitely east coast yeah. um, you know he has three filters in there mm. <laughs> and you can uh, voltage control all of them at the same time in different ways so this yeah. is going to be a bit of a weird question but sort of when you wake up in the morning mm. what sort of moves dictate that you go oh i'm in a bukla mood today or oh i'm in a hordite mood today because like sometimes i'll get up and i go I'm in a piano mood. I just want to tinkle around and lose myself and just do nothing, you know. And then I'm uh, in a haken mood and, you know, want to be expressive and go soundscape. So uh, what sort of moods dictate you to different equipment? Is there such a thing with you? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think I was thinking of something about the easel the other night and I woke up in the morning and went, oh, right, I could make that connection. So immediately... You know, You're after coffee and my walk <laughs> in the woods, it's it's off to go give that a try. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it often leads to something else. The other thing is since I do Skype lessons, right, for people that have Hordikes or Surges or Eurorax or Buklas, yeah. often, you know, if I know I'm going to have a session on 73, 75 Surge in three days, I'll start working on, uh, yeah, I'll go over there and uh, spend some more time. My clients and students uh, sometimes guide me or, you know, I mean, most recently I just borrowed the control and signal router, the Buchla format control and signal router from Doug Cloder from yeah. Studio H software, which is like, you know, pat- patterned on the Buchla 210. So it routes audio and control voltage signals. And it's like, oh my goodness. That's sort of a game changer. So, you know, since I only have that for a limited time, I'll go out and jump on that for a few hours before I move on to something else. Well, I suppose we better wrap it up there, hadn't we? Time has just zipped by. There's a million more questions we could ask you, Todd. And you're definitely going to have to come back on again. (laughs) (laughs) I would happily. It's great spending time with you two. And yes, the time did zip by. So let's do this again. Yeah, it'd be absolutely fantastic. Okay. Yeah. We need hard Ike in our life, Ed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, it's been quite interesting because we haven't talked about Bukla too much actually in this podcast, but it's just nice to go over a lot of other stuff that you do as well, Todd, because, you know, you, 
you do broach a lot of different systems and do a lot of different creativity within music in a broad spectrum from, mm. from the analog traditional instrument to, you know, the wild, wacky and wonderful world of Blue Killer and Holdike. It's, <laughs> it's colossal, really. Yeah. Well, as, uh, as I think we started this podcast, you asked how I was doing. Yeah. And I said, life is good. That's actually a quote from Rob Hordyke. That's something he says often. So here's here's to Rob. Give credit where credit is due. Life is good. There's lots of topics Todd has spoken about before in other places, and we're, we're all about supporting each other, and we'll certainly be linking out in the show notes to multiple podcasts and areas to check out Todd's work as well. But we will, of course, as Ed said, we'll have to get you back soon as well. At this point, I'd like to shout out some of our friends in Seattle, our connections over there. Thinking of Buchla, Kylan Roberts' Source of Uncertainty podcast. They're not helping with that lure and pull of the Buchla in my mind. <laughs> Tim Held's Podular Modcast, Waveform Magazine, which has just moved to its new paid subscription model and seems to be going from strength to strength. Patchworks, which has a really lovely feature video from Jeremy, Red Means Recording recently. If you'd like to check out a bit more about how a local synth store can really be a core part of the scene and part of a community. That's a great video. Yeah, and I'd also like to give a shout out as well to a great podcast that I listened to for years, which is the Art, Music and Technology podcast by Darwin Gross. I'm sure you listen to it, but if you don't get yourself over there, he's got a massive back catalogue. Uh, start from the beginning. He covers a myriad of topics and has some great conversations on there. We release our show every month, so remember to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. And if you find yourself over there, you've enjoyed the show, then please give us a thumbs up or write us a review. If you'd like to listen to the podcast with detailed show notes, please head over to our website at www.esotericmodulation.com. You can look us up on Instagram and Facebook where you can keep up to date with what's going on. That's a great place to get in touch and pop any questions at us. If there's been anything in the show at all, you'd like us to find a link that's not up on the website, do let us know. And if we can't find it, we'll ask Todd and report back as well. (laughs) I think that rounds it up, Ed. It rounds it up, Todd. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It was great seeing you both. Bye. See you, man.